Presenting this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. Allergy season is in full swing. From asthma to food allergies, ReachMD is keeping you up to date with the latest in allergy medicine. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Katen Sheff, Medical Director of the Lafayette Allergy and Asthma Clinic in Lafayette, Indiana. Are prick and patch allergy tests still considered effective, or have other testing methods emerged as better indicators of allergy? Joining us to discuss what's new in allergy diagnostic testing, 2008 Joint Task Force Practice Parameters, is Dr. I. Leonard Bernstein, co-director of the Allergy Research Laboratory in the Department of Medicine at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Dr. Bernstein was co-author of the Joint Task Force's Parameters. Welcome, Dr. Bernstein. Yes, thank you. Well, how were the allergy diagnostic parameters developed? Well, actually, this is the third upgrade of the parameters. It started in 1987. I chaired a NIH consensus conference on the new technologies that were beginning to appear at that time. And we published the first version of the allergy diagnostic guidelines, so to speak, in 1988. And as a result of that, the three major allergy organizations invited me to actually become a member of the Joint Task Force on Practice Parameters. And since that time, we have developed two additional updates of allergy diagnostic testing, the last one published in 1995 and the most recent one this year. What were the goals of developing the parameters? The main goal was essentially to ensure quality for our patients and, of course, to educate, if need be, members of our society and members of the profession at large as to the proper way to use testing and interpret testing for the benefit of patients. Are there common misconceptions about allergy diagnostic testing that these parameters are attempting to correct? Yes, I think there are many misconceptions. One of the chief misconceptions, I think, is that we try to correct is that many doctors, even many allergists, have thought that allergy skin testing can be directly correlated with clinical allergy. And that's not true. Clinical allergy means that you have the symptoms And we can show that you have the symptoms by doing provocation testing or placing you in an environment where you're exposed to certain allergens. And that's what we mean by clinical allergy. But some people think, have thought, that just doing a skin test or even an in vitro test directly correlates with that condition of clinical allergy. So in other words, we differentiate between, let's say, skin test positive patients and patients with clinical allergy, or we differentiate between patients with a positive in vitro test and allergy. So you really have to show that there is a positive predictive value or positive likelihood that your test will, in fact, confirm the fact that you have clinical allergy. Are there some other misconceptions that you're working on or these parameters are trying well, to Well, I mean, with? one of the things that we try to establish here is that, for example, with prick testing, that you have to realize that there are many different devices that are being used for prick testing. Some of the devices aren't as good as others. Some of them are too traumatic and therefore make it difficult to interpret. Some people don't use the proper controls in doing the test. For example, you need to use a positive and a negative control, uh, otherwise you can't interpret them properly. And the other thing that we try to emphasize with prick testing in particular is that you have to measure them, and you have to record them in a standardized way so that if a patient moves from, let's say, Cincinnati to Seattle, the doctor in Seattle will be able to know exactly how sensitive that patient was in terms of the actual size of the skin test. And that's one of our goals of this particular task force. How effective are the prick tests or even the intracutaneous tests? 
Well, the prick tests actually, generally speaking, of course, they may vary from allergen to allergen. Some allergens are very potent. For example, the specificity of cat allergen is very high and very correlates very well with clinical sensitivity. But the specificity and sensitivity of other allergens may vary a great deal. Uh, the pollens in general are pretty good. They correlate in terms of about 70-75%. Sometimes in certain situations, maybe a little higher. But the, the sensitivity of mold allergens and prick testing may be less. And so there is a certain hierarchy of sensitivity and even specificity among different allergens. Well, maybe we should really actually step back. You and I are both allergists, obviously, and we talk about this all the time. But what do we mean by a prick test or intracutaneous test? Well, a prick test is we use a sharp needle-like instrument, and we simply just prick the outer layer of the skin very gently in such a way as not to draw blood. And then we place the allergen on top of that prick. Some people actually brush it off right away, and some people brush it off after about 15 minutes. We read the test in 15 to 20 minutes, and we can really... If it's a positive test, we see a wheel area or like a hive-like area that we can measure. And we also see a small area of erythema around the wheel, which we also measure. So we measure both the wheel and the erythema, and both have a certain amount of significance. The intracutaneous test is done by injecting a small amount of material intracutaneously between the layers of the epidermis and the dermis, a very slight pleb. It shouldn't be any more than 0.02 ml. And then without drawing blood, hopefully, and then you wait about 10 or 15 minutes to read that. Of course, you have to have a positive histamine control along with it, and you have to have a negative saline control along with it. In terms of reading a prick test, a prick test has to be at least 3 millimeters or above in terms of the negative saline control before it really can be considered positive. And that's a very strict criteria. Uh, and if we don't adhere to that, you, know, you may just be reading the test incorrectly. Generally speaking, the prick tests are more specific than the intracutaneous tests. The intracutaneous tests are more sensitive. And in fact, the intracutaneous tests are good for certain things. They're very good for diagnosis of insect venom allergy, the type of allergy that causes anaphylaxis. And they're very good for diagnosing penicillin allergy, which also can result in anaphylaxis. We don't know why that there is this difference, but it certainly is something that we've learned by experience. But on the other hand, the intracutaneous test can be too sensitive for many things. We certainly don't think they should be used for the diagnosis of food allergy because they're simply too sensitive. And then sometimes they can be very irritative. The reason that we have a problem with the intracutaneous test is because people have used it at one concentration, let's say one to a thousand weight by volume. Whereas we know from many studies now that the proper interpretation of intracutaneous tests requires a type of stepwise threshold testing, that is, testing to various dilutions, starting with small levels to higher levels. So that's how it works the best. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Katen Sheth, and joining me to discuss what's new in allergy diagnostic testing, 2008 Joint Task Force Practice Parameters, is Dr. I. Leonard Bernstein, co-director of the Allergy Research Laboratory at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Now, one of the other types of allergy tests is obviously the patch test for contact dermatitis. Is the true test effective? Yes, the true test is some of the most common allergens that cause contact dermatitis. So contact dermatitis is a type of rash, red, raised rash that people get after becoming allergic to things they come in contact with. For example, 10% of all women 
have nickel allergy by wearing some costume jewelry, especially for earrings and bracelets and necklaces. They may develop an allergy to the nickel metal, and that can last for decades or, in fact, for the rest of their lives sometimes. And it can be very troublesome. And we also have to worry about various metals that are used in prosthetic devices, such as knees and hips and rods that are used for scoliosis and that sort of thing, because these alloys tend to leach out of these materials. So having a good test for these potentially very serious problems is a very important thing for allergists. Allergists, incidentally, I think do as much patch testing as dermatologists do these days, because they have a you know, great interest in, in the whole area of delayed hypersensitivity, which contact dermatitis represents. The true test itself tests for the most common materials that cause contact dermatitis. Unfortunately, it isn't as complete as the North American Contact Dermatitis Test Panel developed by dermatologists. That includes about 65 reagents altogether. But these are well known to all allergists, and actually this true test can be easily expanded depending on the history that the patient presented in terms of what they came in contact with. But it is a very effective test. It has to be read not immediately, but 48 hours later. It's quite different than the prick test because it measures a different kind of immune reaction. It's called delayed hypersensitivity. That's why we read it in a delayed way. You read it in 48 hours, and many people insist, including me, that you should also read it in 96 hours because some allergens don't show up until that time. And in fact, there are a few weakly reacting allergens that don't show up for as long as one week. So we even sometimes take the reading even further. But once you have a positive reading, that fully establishes the diagnosis. And in fact, if one wants to, one can even correlate this with some in vitro tests of cell-mediated immunity. Well, what other sorts of in vitro tests are available? Well, for IgE, or allergic reactions, we call them IgE because IgE is the name given to the allergic antibody it was first discovered by a Japanese team by the name of Ishisakas. So now we really know what the allergic antibody actually is. And the tests that we do are all ITE-mediated type of tests. And in 1967, a group in Sweden developed an in vitro test, which at the time was called a RAS test. Since that time, the test has been further refined and is now available to several different companies. One is called an Immunocap, and one of them is called an Immulite. And it does measure quantitatively the amount of specific IgE or allergic antibody in the serum. Just as the prick test, though, it has to be done in a careful way. It has to be done with the proper type of controls. What we like to see is that it's done with an allergen that's the same you're looking for. For example, if we were looking to see whether a patient was allergic to ragweed, we certainly want to include a known ragweed control in the in vitro test. And this should be a negative control as well. So one of the problems with the in vitro test or potential problems is you really have to know the quality of the test run by the specific company that you're sending the blood to because quality is all important in this test. And the only way you can be assured of quality is to really find out if the company is sending their specimens in a regular manner to the American College of Pathology surveys a blood test, which they do specifically for this in vitro test. The in vitro test is not quite as sensitive as the prick test. So therefore, most allergists will prefer to do the prick test first. However, in certain situations, it's very helpful. 
for example, if the patient has skin disease where you can't test or the patient has had antihistamines which would interfere with the prick test, this would be a very good alternative provided that it is interpreted properly, provided that the test is done properly and with the controls that I've mentioned. For some of these ones where uh, patients get their blood drawn sent out to uh, a lab and we really don't know the quality, and I understand that, but what about, do you get false positives on those? They come back, they're positive to a low degree to a number of different allergens. One of the problems is that the companies that do this, you know, unfortunately they're in the commercial business that's trying to sell a test, and what they've done was that they tried to push the limits of the test a little bit. They call it a class one type of reaction positive. And there's very little evidence that a class one test would, would correlate at all with clinical sensitivity. You have to have at least a class two, which is now measured in terms of units. And the units are determined by a World Health Organization reference standard. So you can, we can actually measure these, these tests quantitatively. So you have to have at least a class two before you could say that there might be a correlation between the test and the actual clinical sensitivity. It's the same type of situation I've mentioned for the prick test, except here it's a little more fuzzier because the companies try to push push the test a little bit, and they will call, they will report back to the practitioner, for example, that a class one test is positive, and that's not true. The clinician has to be very careful about that. Let's come back to one of your earlier points that you wanted to make, that the testing doesn't equal clinical allergy. Yes. So how do we confirm clinical allergy? Well, the way we confirm clinical allergy is actually by, first of all, taking a good history, see if we can duplicate the history by putting the patient in that same situation. Let's say if a patient's allergic to ragweed, we want, we want to see the patient during a ragweed season to see if they're having symptoms. Or if we want to do it sooner, we can do what we call provocation testing. So we can do provocation testing in the, in the conjunctiva, the eye. We can do similar testing in the nose and use objective methods of evaluating it, and also bronchial testing. So we can do all this in the laboratory under control conditions, or we can do it under natural conditions. Some physicians who do clinical trials will actually put patients in a park situation during the particular season and observe the symptoms directly in a natural environment. So you can do it either naturally or in a laboratory under control conditions. I would like to thank my guest from the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, Dr. I. Leonard Bernstein. Dr. Bernstein, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD XM160. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit acaai.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.